Welcome back to the Wrist Check Podcast. The gang is back together again, minus <laughs> our uh, amigo. The man who never wears a watch. The man who never watch. repeats a watch. man never who never wears a watch. watch. That's good. Freudian slip. <laughs> uh, who is in London this week. You know, Rashawn is a lot like Carmen Sandiego. You just never know where yeah. he's going to be. Where in the world is Carmen Sandiego? Where in the world is Rashawn Smith? <laughs> Agent 007 is reporting to duty. And he's in London town. Uh, we'll see you when you get back, sir. Love you and miss you. Uh, but tonight, we've got a special guest on the couch with us. Uh, before we introduce him, allow us to introduce ourselves. My name is Perry. And I'm Ben. And we make up two thirds of the Risk Check podcast. Tonight, we got our friend Zach Blass. Shout going, out guys? to you, Zach. <laughs> this has been some time in the making. Yeah, it has. It has. Yeah. Um, we've been talking about having you on for some time. Uh, we see you everywhere. Uh, you're the man who's always there, never not there. <laughs> um, and so if, if you, you know, we, we, are, we are privileged enough, I think, uh, to, to be in a space right now where we get to attend all of these different events and uh, many of the people whom we either admire or follow their work um, we've managed to foster relationships with them. Uh, Zach is one of these people. He's an editor at Time and Tide. Yes, I am. And the first, uh, the first U.S. man on the ground. The for first. Time and Tide. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to the uh, to the, uh, to, the to, to, to the Australians. Yeah, uh, we've infiltrated their business. Um, but it's good to finally have you here, man. Yeah, no, look, I, I've been I've been excited to come on. I'm glad we can, you know, finally connect. But yeah, you're absolutely right. When it comes to New York, you know, there's just so much watch wise going on here. And we have like events like every other day. They're yeah, joking with the PR yeah. people that they need to talk more because there's certain days where nothing's happening. And then another day there's three different brand events happening all at once. It's wild. And we've got to like Uber between all of them. It's crazy. <laughs> it's crazy. Um so we're gonna get into into some things tonight. Um, Zach is coming on board as as a guest. We're gonna we're gonna get into a little bit of his um, his background, and uh, but we're also gonna have some fun. We're gonna talk watches. Yeah, of course. That's what um, before we move on, we've got to have our honorary wrist check. Of course. Uh, as, as is oh, absolutely as is tradition. <laughs> ben, you want to kick us off tonight, sir? Daytona. Not much else to say. <laughs> it has not been off my. It was off my wrist for one episode. For one episode, yeah. Aside from that, I mean, that was it. I gotta admit, man, it's uh, you know, I loved it when you when you first acquired it, and uh, it, I don't know, it's just your mood, man. I can't. It's hard to picture you with another watch right now. I, I feel the same way. Unless it's a Patek <laughs> or a Jorn, I'm like, I'm, but I'm even still, go. like uh, Oyster Flex Daytona, you know, it's funny because we have a lot of friends that. Mm -hmm are into this specific uh, piece. And um, it was never really my thing, but now that it's around me on the constant, I see you wearing it, I'm like, damn, I think I need to waste I remember like when I first got <laughs> it, you were one of the first people to see it when I got it. Yeah. And you were also one of two people who said if Rolex had to make a watch for you, that's what they would make. And I was like, you know what? It's good. Right. <laughs> it's pretty good. It's pretty good. No, but there's it's nothing good. more dangerous than like, a really good sports watch on a rubber strap. Yeah. You know, they like make I, a leather strap for it now. I'm hype. I, I can't wait to swap. Once upon a time, I was like very close to making a trade for a 5066 Aquanaut. Okay. Mm -hmm. 
and it fell through, which was unfortunate, but I'm actually kind of glad when I wrote about this once because I knew if I had that watch, it would be very hard for me to rotate and wear other things because it's so tempting when you have a <laughs> so, watch like that to just slap it on and just go about your day. It's funny you say that because I'm, I was holding on to a friend's Aquanaut recently. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, a 5165A. This Ooh. is the one that was discontinued after two years. Yeah, 38, the 38 right? millimeter. Yeah. And I, I wore it every day. I couldn't wear anything else. I mean, As a matter of fact, I took it with me to New Orleans. I wore a, I wore a Tiffany stamp 5167 for a year straight. Nice. From the 24th to 25th birthday. Woo! And yeah. literally every single day, it never came It's off. so easy to wear. And then the other thing that I appreciated about it, no one knows what the hell it is. No, yeah, under the radar. And you can dress it up and dress it down because- Exactly. Like, with, especially with black rubber, yep. right? Because from a distance, nobody's going to be able to notice if it's like a leather strap or a rubber strap. Not at all. So. It's actually like dangerous. It is when you have a watch like that, especially if you're like me and I'm I'm like Rashawn in that way, where I try to wear something different every day. Sure, but it's very it's it's so easy to just grab and go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dangerous. Um, <laughs> I'll go next. We'll save our guests for for last. Sure. Uh, I'm wearing a new watch on the show. I'm wearing uh, though I've had this for some time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm wearing uh, my Christopher Ward London Belcanto. And you swapped Ooh. the strap. I swapped the strap. So for a little bit, uh, for a little while, I had this on a rubber strap. Um, and I was like, man, I really want to throw a leather on it. And it's getting, it's getting cooler in the city. So I'm, I'm actually still in search for like the perfect strap. But I found this um, like alligator stamped leather strap. I got one in gray and I got one in mint green just to kind of play around with it. Uh, I'm feeling the gray right now. Um, you know, it's funny. I'm actually kind of having like a Hafez moment. Trying stuff out. <laughs> I'm trying stuff out. So there's a couple of straps. I, I visited Jean Rousseau recently. Okay. And I have an idea of what I want to do. But before I commit to spending that kind of money on a strap, <laughs> I was like, let me see if I could find the same color on Amazon.com. So, <laughs> so I found these alligators. Exactly. I found these alligator stamp straps. So you bought 10 for the price of the genre. I strap. bought I bought two straps and it's got like a deploying like clasp. Like it's like, I'm like, and I'm feeling, I'm feeling the color. I'm like, okay, because I wanted to do leather. I was like, do I do brown? No, maybe green. I got the mint green. I'm like, ah, oh, this is kind of cool. But I think like the light, almost like slate gray kind of thing is like, I think it works. Because actually the strap that comes with this piece, if I can be honest, is doo -doo. ass. Yeah, <laughs> it's, doo -doo. it's bad. Yeah. Uh, so I took that strap off immediately. And I threw a rubber, uh, I actually had a Moser strap on there, rubber Moser strap. And I've been wearing that for a while and um, I actually love the combination. Um, their straps are super comfortable. I think they look cool, they have a unique aesthetic. Um, What's the it, water resistance on the case? <laughs> none, yeah. uh, maybe three ATM. No, just because when you say rubber, I'm like, okay, like, yeah, like, <laughs> like what, what, what can, you know, what can we do with this? You can't do much. Yeah, um, but I really, really, actually, I, I really, really love this watch. We've talked about Christopher Ward London uh, for some time on the show, it's specifically the the Belcanto. We spent a great deal of time talking about it, and um, every time I wear this watch, not only do I get amazing compliments from people because 
you meet people who have no idea what it is and they think it's like, oh my God, it's like the most expensive thing in the world. And then <laughs> you tell them about it and they're blown away. But there is, um, when you talk about, you know, collecting watches and experiencing timepieces, this is something that never lets me down. Yep. I look down on it and I smile all the time. Not only when I look down on it. When you hear it. When I hear it. When that chime hits and I know, oh, the hours change. <laughs> like, damn, that's nice. It's good. Yeah. It's good. So I, I'm, I'm getting a lot of love uh, from this piece, uh, both from admirers and uh, from the watch itself. So that's been quite good. Uh, Zach, what do you got for us tonight on the wrist? So I am a special piece. I'm wearing my Cartier Santos Dumont limited edition. Okay. A pink gold case that is beige lacquered not only on the dial but on the front of the case as well Ooh. um i saw this at watches and wonders 2022 and if you guys watch you know any uh, time and tide coverage i'm sure you would have seen in the video that i was lusting after this watch you know from the start mm -hmm. yeah, you were hype on that for a while yeah, I've, yeah so like right away in the booth i was saying to the cartier employees that i wanted this watch and i think as a journalist they thought like I don't know, he's just trying to compliment us or he's just blowing smoke <laughs> or whatever. And when clearly they weren't getting the message, I, you know, reached out to Derek over at Karen Co. And I said, look, shout, shout out to, to Derek. Minimon. The Minimon. At the Minimon. <laughs> so I sent him a message and I said, look, I don't know if this piece goes to authorized dealers or if it's like, you know, boutique only. But if you're getting allocations for this or if I can submit an application, please let me know. He's like, yeah, sure. And like a few weeks later, he's like, okay, you have like two minutes. I need your information now. Like the deadline's like here, send your information through. Mm -hmm. So I send it through. And fortunately, I, I was the sole person to get an allocation from from a store. That's pretty Card good, Cardi man. Cardi's like, you get one and it's going to Zach. So. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. And I, I, I think I, I cut it close because it's number 249 of 250. Yeah, you did. Really? <laughs> oh, that's number 249. That's pretty good. 250, so. That's a cool number to have. That's yeah, funny. So I, got, I got very lucky. And yeah, it, it's just, it's, it's. This is the watch that made me realize I'm in the era of collecting where I'm actually more focused on the external aesthetics of a watch mm. than necessarily the, the internals. Because as you mature, you get to a point where you realize the real like hand decoration and fine movement sort of tier is a very, very, you know, six figure sort of game. Sure. I don't have that bank account. Yep. So, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm kind of past that point of thinking like, oh, I have to have like the most like do four like movement in my watch because yeah. until I, you know, win the lottery, that's just yeah. not going to happen. So how can I keep things interesting? And to me, this is interesting. You know, I think that makes an interesting point too, because I think for me, you know, thinking of timepieces um, that way is at least for me sort of getting back to the essence, right? When I think about like my grandfather who Mm -hmm. Never really considered him. He, he didn't consider himself a watch collector, but he collected watches and he had a watch for every specific purpose in his life. But what connected yeah. him to the timepieces was not only their function, but how well they looked. Right. Yeah. And so I think for for many people, I think for all of us initially, that is like the first level of engagement. It's like, man, that thing looks really cool. I would yeah. love to have that adorn my wrist. This watch, um, I love this watch. <laughs> so you know how like the industry sort of creates nicknames for watches all the time. Sure. 
I have nicknamed this one. I call it the buttercream. Okay, you call it the buttercream. I call it the buttercream. Right. And I just, I love this watch. I think the lacquer <laughs> on that, the dial, yeah. absolutely beautiful. Um, I can't think of another watch that has that exact color in it. I, I don't think it exists. Mm-hmm. Um, out of the three that they did, this to me was the one. I'm smiling right now because everything you're saying is what I pretty much said. Yeah. Like in our, in our coverage and later when I, you know, revealed it on video that I had it. But yeah, no, when I, like when I first saw it, it just made me think of, for whatever reason, like Havana in Cuba. I've never been to Cuba, mm. but it just gave me that kind of vibe where, I mean, this, like the watch in terms of how it looks is probably cooler than I am. So sometimes <laughs> on my self-conscious, I'm like, I don't know if I have the swag to pull it off, but yeah, I just, like you said, it, it's just a very distinct thing that they've done. And I've even told like the Audemars Piguet people because I wore it once when I went to like a showing in a boutique. Yeah, I'm like you guys should do this to a Royal Oak. Like that would be really <laughs> crazy. <laughs> you know, not not to encourage more copying off of people, but you know, I think a fair bit of people have, have you know, let's just say done homages of the Royal Oak. So sure. it's their turn to maybe bite off of Absolutely. somebody else a little bit. Why not? And yeah, I think a lacquered Royal Oak would be. I think that would be tight. <laughs> pretty pretty damn cool. No, that's a great idea. <laughs> um, so. Zach Blass, yes, sir. Editor at Time and Tide. Um, as is the case with most watch people, mm-hmm. um, there's a point of entry, if you will. Sure. There's a origin story. Yep. And everyone's is obviously different and unique, but. Um, I think the, the the beautiful thing about watches and, and why we love um, these contraptions um, is because of the stories that we sort of attach to them, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm curious, you know, what kind of started it all for you? Because you've had a a pretty interesting career like moving from and we'll get into it but you know moving from like uh industry sales side to now almost you know like uh you know you're working with an actual like publisher yep uh where you're reviewing watches and coming into contact with them constantly but to 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 occupy either lane right you have to have a love and appreciation for it i'm curious where that developed with you yeah, so for for me, I always give credit to my grandfather. Okay, because my my grandfather sold watches for a living. And oh, really? Yeah. Wow. So I mean, he would. Was he working with like a retailer, or did he have like so his own a, situation? A, a bit of both. There was a period of time, I think, in terms of like when when I was alive at that point, like after nineteen ninety three, because that's when I was born. Mm. I think he worked in various different boutiques, and he sold a variety of brands, anything from like Omega to to Rolex. But uh, I think he started where he was, I think it was Victorinox or Swiss Army. Okay. He was door to door. He would buy the watches from Victorinox and then sell them door to door. And he was like, you know, one of the top salespeople in like the New England area for, for Swiss Army. Oh, wow. Where um, was he doing that? At? I'm sorry? Where was he doing that? At? I, honestly, I don't have like all the details. I just know that he was just in a certain region around like Connecticut. And, yeah. You know, he was just selling these these Swiss Army watches to people. Um, but 
for me, when I would go visit him, he had one watch, and that was a two-tone uh, Rolex Datejust 36. Okay. Um, so steel and yellow gold, the old ro yellow Rolosaur, as we're supposed to say. Yeah. And if I remember correctly, because unfortunately he doesn't have the watch anymore, um, it was a white Roman numeral dial. Okay. Um, but what stood out to me as like a little kid was the Cyclops. Hmm. So like if there's any part of a watch that got me into it, like as a, like a very young kid was the Cyclops. That's interesting. Just like, I don't know, the, the magnification sure. lens just, it stood out to me because yeah. I just never seen anything that like had something like that on mm -hmm. it. Um, but he was always the very sort of pragmatic, like be responsible with your money. So even though I'm like six years old, he's giving me a lecture about how like, you know, this isn't for you, this isn't a toy. <laughs> you know, <laughs> when you work hard, get older, then you can have one. Yeah. Um, so that was kind of like it, like initially. And then as I got older and I'm, you know, I'm like middle and high school and I'm starting to think about like how I look and how I dress and all that, um, at that point, watches were an accessory yeah it was just fashion so mm -hmm. like i think for the majority of like my like time in high school i had like a timex j crew watch okay and that was it it was like i think todd snyder was a j crew at the time yep and it's their sort of field watch that was on a nato strap i remember this watch actually yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. and i and i only knew about it because i read a gq article yep. and then boom so it goes from there um but my grandfather, he gave me a Swiss Army watch when I was in like fifth grade. And so seriously, ever since I was in fifth grade, every day with like a few exceptions, I've always had a watch on my wrist. Mm. It was just always ingrained on me. You know, the same way people feel like the phantom vibrate when they leave their iPhone at home. Yeah. <laughs> if I leave the house without a watch and I realize it, and this obviously rarely happens, but when I do, I freak out because I'm like, oh sure. my God, I feel so naked. Yeah, I've been here. Yeah. Um, the only time I don't is if for some reason I'm wearing my pocket watch and I'm intentionally not wearing a watch, but at least I know right. I have this thing in my pocket. Yeah. Right? Um, so yeah, every, every day since like fifth grade, I've, I've always had a watch on and it wasn't until college where I'm in my dorm and this is when like the rise of digital watch media is happening. And okay. This is like the rise of like everybody really getting into vintage watches. Um, there's always been collectors who have been sort of in on the game and they've been bidding on things. You know, there's people who've gotten the Paul Newman Daytona for $10,000 before people knew what it was and, right. and all of that. But all right. So now, now I'm awake to this community. I'm reading Hodinkee. I'm, you know, I'm even, I'm reading time and tide. Right. Um, so I decided I wanted my first mechanical watch. My first mechanical watch, um, I got on eBay for okay. a few hundred bucks. Uh, Longines mainliner from the 1940s, and I still have nice. it. Nice. Um, and I'm actually proud of myself that that's what I picked because I wasn't even thinking of like diameters and stuff like that then. Sure. But I have a small wrist, and it's a 28 millimeter diameter, but it's mm. a cage case design. So okay. the lug to lug span is actually, I mean, it's not large, but it's large for a 28 millimeter case. Yeah. So it was almost like the first thing I picked had like the dimensions of a tungsten tray. Yeah. Right. Uh, and I wore the hell out of it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I wore it in like scenarios I, sh I had no business wearing it. And again, it's part of like the growing and evolving process that like I have this vintage gold filled Longines that I'm falling asleep wearing it. Yeah. Um, you know, flying to like Amsterdam on spring break wearing it. The rain's coming down. I don't even have a sleeve over it. Somehow like this thing is still ticking and surviving. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think the last time I checked, it's running at like 
plus 60 seconds a day, I probably should get it serviced. But, <laughs> but you know, it survived. And like you can see on the case back how many like marrings and scratches there are for me trying to open it up mm. just because I wanted to look at the movement. Yeah. And so I learned a lot from that watch. And you can see like how, like how I've grown from that watch because you can look at my other watches and you don't see like case back sure. markings <laughs> on the, you know, I learned, with, okay. Some restraint. to the watch yeah. Yeah. Or, or get an exhibition case back because, you know. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so in terms of like my first like serious mechanical watch, it was the Longines and that mm. was something I got, I want to say like in like 2010, 2011. Oh, wow. And, and that's where I would say I started as like a watch collector. Yeah. Like before it was just this accessory. It was this thing that I wore because I knew I was supposed to wear it as a man mm, or sure. you know, whatever, or because my grandfather told me to. But with that Longines, that was the transition where I'm like, no, 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 I'm buying these because I have respect for what these are right and i appreciate the fact and this is something i still appreciate that we live in a world where there are so many devices with like forced obsolescence mm. things that are built to break yep. or to be replaced whereas i just bought that vintage watch that's from the 1940s so at that time it was 70 years old yeah right and it's still ticking it's still working yeah and i have so much respect for that because that's the that's to me the beauty and romance of mechanical watches is Yes, there's the stories, but the stories can be accrued because yep. these objects can live for so long. Yeah. They can actually live multiple lives, not just like one, you know, four year span that like an Apple Watch does. No, you have to throw yeah. it out and replace it or, you know, whatever. So yeah. up, now, up until that point, was that the only watch you had besides the Victorinox? Yeah, I mean, I like I had like a few other sort of like quartz things that like mm -hmm. uh that like family had given me or whatever. I think I was given like a Joker fossil watch, which I, I still have it. I just don't really wear it. The battery has been dead for probably close to a decade. Okay. <laughs> um, so like I, I've had a few things and, and yeah, I mean, after the Longines, there was some stuff that, you know, I dug up and found, I, I was going through some, some boxes and I found my grandfather's bomb and Mercier, uh, oh, nice. Fossima. Um, which is basically a very thin yellow gold dress watch that I want to say is like 34 millimeters in diameter with a porcelain white dial and Roman numerals. Mm. Uh, but it's an interesting quirk to the quartz movement because it ticks every 20 seconds. Hmm. So it, every minute there's three ticks versus just like one, which I thought was kind of quirky and cool. And for me, I have no issue with quartz and I'm not a quartz knob, but I, I typically don't like wearing quartz because I don't like a deadbeat second. Okay. But I also don't like a mechanical watch with deadbeat seconds. Really? Yeah. So it, it's not it's not discriminating, right? But I do like quartz when it comes to two handers because you you would never yeah, you can't see it. Well, you can't yeah, see the difference. It's like a little yeah. 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 So like there is a place for like two handed quartz if you like especially for a dress watch where you're just like, all right, I just want to slap this on and go to the wedding. Yeah. Um so for a time like that was like my formal watch. Like if I was going to like, you know, some sort of black tie thing, like sure. that's the watch I would put on. And then, yeah, it just sort of gradually grew from there. Like, you know, John Mayer said on Talking Watches that like the first 10 watches, you know, are the ones where like you make mistakes, you learn sure. or you know, whatever. <laughs> and it's so true because uh, while I do have watches that I started out with, a lot of the watches I started out with, I don't have anymore as well mm. through trading and selling and, you know, upgrading and, and all that. Sure. But yeah, I, don't, you know, I, I could go, that could be like two hours. That's a whole nother be. episode. Yeah. <laughs> Um, you know, I think it's, I think there's something to, to be said for your introduction, right? And, you know, you mentioned like the stories, like that's accrued. Um, but when I, and, 
and that's important because when I think about sort of what I appreciate about timepieces and what I feel like is is resonating through you is, and what's interesting is, if I can backtrack just a little bit, talking about sort of like how we know you and how we've met, mm-hmm. there's, there's always seems to, you know, watches have a very interesting way of like either forging relationships or just cementing those, yeah. right? And you think about like your grandfather's, uh, you know, profession where he essentially, it sounds like he was his, his own retailer. Like he's yeah. buying watches <laughs> wholesale and then, and this was like, obviously like you're dating it, right? Because you're talking about like, yo, he sold them like door to door, like, which yeah. is not a thing that yeah. happens anymore in the 2020s. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> you know, this is like, we're, we're, we're well past that, like the door to door salesman. But I think it's so, so interesting because, you know, he's sort of the bridge for you into this, this hobby and this passion. And then you uh, moved into the retail space yourself. I want to talk about that a little bit because yeah, sure. though it wasn't a long time, as I understand, you did yeah. have a, a brief stint where you worked in retail with uh, Piaget. Yes. Right? So, I mean, look, for, for me, I always say that I'm an enthusiast before a journalist, but before I got to the journalist stage, I figured, okay, how can I get into the watch world? So and, your goal was it was really just like, I want in. I want yeah. to be I just, part I just of wanted the, to be the community. in the watch verse. Yeah. Right? Um, like I, I like the idea of selling watches. Like if I'm gonna sell something, I'd rather be something that I that I love. I mean, before PJ, I worked in like CPG marketing, and it was like my job to like figure out how to make Oreo sexy, right? Like, I, like <laughs> that's pretty good. Yeah, like I, you know, like okay, like it, you know, I, I collected my paycheck, but it wasn't my passion. Sure. Right. Um, so eventually, I, I finally transitioned into you know working for PJ, and. You know, it's it's an interesting experience, right? Because Piaget is not, you know, the most well-known brand today. Sure, and it's this brand that has so many laurels and ultra-thin watchmaking. It, it really, really does. Rich history, but like anything else that you have to sell, if you have to educate too much, it can be a bit of a challenge. Sure. Um, but it was just really cool because I worked in the Hudson Yards boutique, and I get to be around these very you know, expensive watches mm. <laughs> um, and get to be sort of intimate with them every day. And part of becoming a watch specialist is you have to go through your trainings or whatever. And so through that, I I knew far more about the brand then than at least off the top of my head I know now. Wow. I mean, if, if you asked me then to like go through the whole like heritage and history of the brand, I could do it. There's something about being like immersed in that space. Yeah, because you're you're yeah. on that team. You're dedicated yeah. to it. And, you know, they they gave me all these books and stuff because they could tell I was really interested. Mm. And I just combed through it and I learned about, you know, the, the 9P and tra- transitioning to the 12P and the Piaget Society and all, all this stuff, Andy Warhol. And so you go through all this heritage and history and you're, you know, now all of a sudden you're really you really want to sell it because you yeah. want people to to sort of come into this world that you know it's not it's not Rolex it's not AP I mean unfortunately there were quite a few times where people would come into the store and ask me I'd love to see the Royal Oak and I'd have to say well I'm sorry this is Piaget not Audemars <laughs> Piguet right? and don't get me wrong like, wow we, we, I didn't know that was a thing yeah and don't get me wrong like we definitely we sold watches right like sure. you know like the, the store is there so I'm not you know saying that it was a, a barren wasteland 
but it definitely is not the sort of thing that you experience as like a Rolex specialist, right? Where a job at Rolex is to allocate. Yeah. So at PJ, I had to sell, right? Like, you know, it's it, it wasn't always this sort of constant stream of people coming in saying, "Can I have a Daytona? Can I have a Daytona?" Yeah, and which was also kind of nice because I didn't have to necessarily like reject anybody. You know, no. if somebody came in looking for something, odds were that I could I could make it happen, which is great for me as a salesperson. Yeah, um, but yeah, it, it it was a really cool experience, and I got to do it for I want to say it was like four four months, mm-hmm. and. Um, it was actually like right before my employee discount would have kicked in too, which, which sucks. But the <laughs> pandemic hit. Yeah. And of course, boutiques closed. Yeah. And, um, you know, last one in, first one out sort of thing. Mm. But I have no regrets because it led me to be where I am today. Yeah. But the other reason why I'm actually very grateful that I was in that store is it just so happened that while I was working um, for like a long time, I was messaging the, the Red Bar guys saying, like, I, I'd love to be a member. I want to go to the meetups. And I just wasn't getting emails back because at that time the the inbox was um, wasn't getting a, like as many responses as, sure. as it should have or whatever. Um, but Adam came into the store. Oh wow! And I got to sort of like show him some stuff or whatever. And once I met him, it was like, oh, well, come down, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and then I of course wore PJ to the meetup because I'm like, yeah, let me see how many people I can get interested in that. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Which um, I don't know if they like that too much, but <laughs> you know, me, me sort of trying to sell there. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, like it, it did exactly what I wanted it to do, which was mm. it got me into the watch world. Yeah. Um, not in terms of like it didn't get me interested in watches. I was I was already, was already far there. away yeah, interested yeah. in them. But it got me in this in this sort of community. Mm. Um, so as a springboard, it, it was perfect. Yeah. Yeah. And I know, you know, you mentioned, you know, Piaget is obviously not a, a brand that is as globally recognized as a Rolex or an AP, but it does still seem like right now they are having a moment. You know, I think yeah. about some of what's taking place with some of the auction houses and, you know, you, you talk about like those very thin timepieces, those fine jewelry uh, timepieces, the cuffs. The bracelets, sure. the necklaces, uh, Piaget is 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 having a moment, and uh, you you happen to be sitting with someone who's a fan. I take a lot of flack for it. I remember telling someone <laughs> at an actual watch meet how badly I wanted a Piaget polo, and they were like, "Oh, you want a faux aquanaut?" Like, so I've had to take a little bit of the heat. Okay, <laughs> no, I mean, look, look. At the end of the day, and let me stress this, please. Like, Piaget is a fantastic watch brand. Right? Incredible. So, so me saying, you know, I don't want people to make, I don't want people to think that I'm saying like nobody buys it or nobody wears it. No, That's people not, wear Piaget. People wear it. People wear Piaget. But ultimately, until the, the revamp polo came out, like, or even still, right? Like the majority of the offering is ultra thin dress watches. Yes. So as we transitioned to a watch world that was all about steel sports, mm-hmm. which was for a time the antithesis of the Piaget brand. Yeah. Of course, you sort of, you know, fall into the shadows a little bit where you become a bit of a niche brand in that you're speaking to the sophisticated clientele, this nine piece society, always on the sunny side, jet yeah. setting client who wants to sort of exude classic wealth Yeah. versus, you know, the Daytonas and Seamasters. <laughs> so it just became, you know, 
sort of out of focus, mm. but with the polo as they've really evolved that collection. Because I they remember really I, have. I mean, when you yeah. think about that perpetual calendar piece mm-hmm. that they did with like mm-hmm. that emerald color dot, I mean, it's gorgeous. Yeah, it's it, it's a very nice piece. Uh, but you know, when I when I worked in the boutique, and you know, they, they always asked us for feedback and stuff, and I said, you know, I don't really get why, because at the time it was just like the the time and date and the chronograph, mm. right? And I said, look, this is 100 meters water resistant. Why do we sell it on a bracelet or a leather strap? It really should be on a rubber strap. And like a year after I left, that's when they introduced like the, the limited the edition on the blue rubber. Yeah. And then they expanded <laughs> it out to, you know, the skeleton yeah. and, and all that. So the, the polo has so much potential. It really does. Um, Which I happen to think looks great on a bracelet. Like I, yeah. I like how versatile it is, but I do appreciate it on a rubber strap. I think the bracelet could use a little bit of work. I mean, I would like to see it transition from pin, pin and collar to screws. Sure. Yep. Um, but I think for me, people would always call it like the sort of Nautilus lookalike. But like you said, I always drew more of a closer commonality with the Aquanaut. Mm-hmm. And so I think it really is at home on a rubber strap. I think so. so. I'm glad that they've done it. Um, and yeah, I like, I think for Piaget, they only have an upward trajectory at this point. I yeah. Think, I don't think as long as they keep with this momentum, more and more people will understand like the worth of, of what they do. I think people are appreciating it. I think yeah. you're exactly right. I think the, the trajectory is moving upwards. And some, some of the reasons uh, or, you know, kind of what I use to measure that when I'm looking at these brands that have heritage and, and, you know, and, you know, have established themselves is I think once you start seeing people reach back into the past, right. And it's like, okay, Piaget, who are they? What do they do? And then they start digging. It's almost like records, like crate digging, like, oh man, like Mm -hmm. there's all of this rich history, just in vintage. Yeah. That people are now beginning to appreciate. And so vintage Piaget is on the rise and you're seeing pieces come back out that is like really, really getting its time to shine right now that I think is really incredible. So um, that had to have been an incredible experience working for that brand and giving them the idea of the rubber strap. Kudos to you. They should cut you a check. (laughs) (laughs) No, but but you're 100% right. Like 70s Piaget, like people are really starting to wake up to it. And, you know, you're seeing like the Mike Novus of the world yeah. and, and other people putting it up and people go, ooh, what's that? Yeah. And I think like, especially now that there was a surge of interest in pieces like the King Midas. Yeah. Right. Where people are, are starting to see like, maybe this is the avenue I go down to be different. Because I think people who, especially who aren't in New York and yep. who are, like, are thinking about these sort of big like Rolly Fest like <laughs> gatherings think that the thing that's going to impress people is wearing a steel Daytona, and and, and it that's doesn't. not it. <laughs> no, like if you go to Rolex Fest with a Rolex on, I think you're not <laughs> impressing anybody. No, but it's like it's like been there, done that. So yeah. when when people wear things that are different, you know, especially something like a Piaget vintage like '70s piece, where nobody's probably heard of that reference number before, even if you know if it even has a reference number. That's cool because people are going to say, "What's that? I want to know the story about." And I day. think you you hit the nail on the head. Um, with that, right? Because to me, that's sort of always been the appeal about the watch community to me. It's not necessarily about, um, I love watches, I love collecting, but to get in a room with people, 
and that conversation that started, right? Yeah. When you see someone with common interests or you see someone that has something, you're like, what the hell is going on over there? What's that about? I got to talk to this <laughs> yeah. person. You know what I'm saying? And then that that creates a whole and and really and I try to explain this to people who, you know, say that they're not watch people. And it's I have a hard time articulating it for them because you, you kind of have to go to some of these watch meetups and these watch groups to really understand why it is that we do what we do. It really boils down to connectivity, right? You enjoy these things. You're passionate about it. It's a hobby. But somewhere along the line, you want to share it with people. You want yeah. a group that you can commune with, right? And watches seems to, to, to be able to do that with people. And that can be misconstrued as like wanting to brag about something. Yeah. But that's not really it because again, it's a very humbling experience to be with like a group of New York collectors because you can walk in and be like, oh, I just got a Hulk and somebody's going to be standing there with a David tune, right? <laughs> so like, it's just not, there's always going to be somebody yeah. who has like the better, sure. more expensive watch. And once you accept that and you just recognize that, like you said, it's just about telling the stories behind it. That's much more fascinating, especially for me now that I'm I'm a, a watch writer, right? Like, yeah. that's what I want to do is tell the story around something. So, what so. do you what do you think PJ is missing then? Like, as someone like you love the brand, so yeah. as, as a fan, as someone who loves and respect them, and you know where they've come from because you have mm -hmm. the history. Like, you see the trends now being a writer for Time and Tide. You see what other brands are doing and what's coming. What do you think PJ is missing out on? Excellent question. I've always said, and I don't think they'll ever do this, and, and I can understand why, because honestly, Breguet's the same way with their tradition watch, where it's like they'll never do it in steel. Mm. But I personally feel that the 900p and 910p in steel versus gold, which honestly, I don't know, like, as a metal, maybe it's not malleable enough, because um, there has to be a little bit of, it has to be able to bend just a little bit, yeah, because um, it's so thin. But if they were to create that watch in steel and offer it at like a, let's say like $18,000 mark, that could be sort of like their Vacheron 56 where it's like, let me bring you into our world. Yeah. Um, yes, like the Polo is that watch, but in terms of like true like Piaget essence, yeah. of like ultra thin watchmaking, I think that would be a really cool thing for them to do is to to put the 900p and 910p in, in steel. Hmm. But, uh, you know, it'll never happen. You could, could go like the Debethune Formex route and have like curved articulating like kind of side lugs built into the case. I don't know. But yeah, I, I don't know. It'd but be interesting. I just, I just think that it's, it's tough, right? Because brands have a core identity and they associate themselves for better or for worse with very high-end luxury because right? yeah. they are not just a watch brand. They are also a very prominent jewelry brand, sure. as you pointed out. And so how does that play if all of a sudden, you know, there's a reason why like Mustacardier doesn't exist, at least not in the same way mm. today, right? It was sort of for Cartier, it was this experiment of like, okay, let's make something that's just cheaper, but in a way it kind of cheapened the Cartier brand a little bit. Yeah. Now, of course, because, you know, they don't exist anymore, they're, these Mustacardier watches are like collector's items. So yeah. it's sort of like, you know, full circle. But that's that's the, the sort of the tricky part for a brand like Piaget is once you set the parameters of who you are and and what you're about, and it is this very lofty, luxurious standard, then it becomes harder to bring people in because the people you have to bring in, at least at retail, are people who have the money for it. Um, so 
yeah, I think as they expand the polo offering and they try to, I, I think with the polo, one of the things that I, I think would be really cool for them to do is to bring their experience with stone dials mm-hmm. yeah. into the polo line. I think, I think I couldn't agree with you more. Don't yeah. they still make a, a Malachite dial? Yeah, they've done Altapanos with meteorite dials yeah. with, um, and then there's possession watches with with various stone dials, turquoise. Uh, and there's a bunch uh, of like jewelry onyx. watches too, right? Yeah, watches, yeah. Of bracelets with stone mm-hmm. dials. But I mean, look, we just saw at the Royal Oak with the the yellow gold turquoise. Yeah, right. and you know, people were like, Phew. yeah. So what? Like, why? As a stone dial expert, imagine if the Polo had a turquoise dial, whether it was a precious metal one or steel. Or I wouldn't whatever. be surprised if you see that coming very soon. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, if I were them, like if I'm mapping it out for them, I would go steel with onyx, yeah, yellow gold with turquoise, and then with like pink gold, you know, maybe I'm not typically a rose and green, but then maybe malachite. I don't know. Mm. Um, I don't know That'd why. Be nice. Yeah, for me, like rose, gold, and green kind of has like a, a vomit feel to it. <laughs> it's like a little barf emoji. <laughs> but when it works, it works. Yeah. You know, there's just certain times where you see it and you're like, okay, I'll make yeah, an exception I get it. for you. Yeah. <laughs> They could just cut out a stone like a and like lay it out how the skeleton polo is. That'd be cool. Yeah, that'd be hard as hell, but it'd be cool. You pull it out. Yeah. Limited edition uh, drop. Yeah, but yeah, I, I think that's what they have to do. Is as people, as we've said, people are waking up to their heritage. They have to figure out how to inject that heritage into their more modern stuff. It feels like people are are starting to wake up to the idea of just collecting brands outside of the major three or four that you hear about all the time. Yeah. Right? And I think this is an interesting time um, that we're veering off to in watches. It feels good, you know, the independents are still rising mm-hmm. and uh, the micro brands. Um, I'm curious, you know, getting into the hobby and the passion as you did, moving into retail, I understand uh, COVID played a significant role in sort of laying down a, a you know a capstone on that and closing that chapter for you. But a, a whole other chapter opened for you yeah. in terms of, um, you know, your participation in the watch community. Uh, and that is you becoming an editor at at Time and Tide. Yeah. Uh, did you always see yourself uh, as uh, a? Did, did you see yourself as a journalist? Was this something that you thought would happen for yourself? Were you pursuing it? How does one find himself in in that situation? Well, I think that was that was you know. Look, I'm not saying COVID was a blessing because it absolutely isn't. But with <laughs> but with that free time that I had, right you know, it's okay. Like, well, what am I going to do? And right. it just so happened that I connected with the guys over at Scottish watches. Okay. And I had this outlet where I was writing some articles for them for their website. Um, Cause I knew being, like I said, first an enthusiast, then a journalist. Right. Right. Okay. So I'm consuming all this watch media. And, I, and that's when I realized as I'm reading all this, I'm like, I want to tell these stories. I want to be in that space. Yeah. Because also I know that if I'm, and it's 100% the truth, as a journalist, you not only get to write about all this stuff, but as you're writing about it, you inevitably have to learn more and more. Yep. So I'm always a student. Mm. Um, you know, I don't think anybody's ever truly a master. Yeah. You can specialize with certain brands. You might know certain brands better than others, but there's always something to learn in the world of watches. And that's what makes it exciting, right? Yeah, it is. Is that you can never truly know everything. 
Um, so I was writing with the Scottish watches guys. I even did like some of their, like at the time they, were, they did these Scottish watches live. So I did like a few of those. They might even still be on YouTube. Mm. Um, but sort of behind the scenes, I at one point had written a reader submission for Time and Tide and they published it. Okay. And as I'm doing some stuff with the Scottish watches guys and you know, I'm like a volunteer, so I'm just writing for fun at that point. Like I'm not getting paid to do it with them. Um, and it's fun, but look, I like, I just lost my job. I've got to figure out something else. <laughs> and like, as if it's a sign, I stand on LinkedIn, Andrew put a post saying he's looking for writers. Hmm. So I reached out to Andrew and I said, look, like you guys published a reader submission of mine. And if you liked it and if it did well, uh, I'd be happy to, to, you know, do some more. And so he messaged me back. He's like, oh, that story killed. Like, that was fantastic. Like, mm. yeah, that'd be great. And so I did like a trial week with them where I, I just wrote for a week. And after that, I became a contributor. Um, so that was in July of 2020, like mm. end of July, where I became a contributor. Um, and I think it was by October where I joined on as a staff writer. Wow. Um, then staff writer to U.S. editor, from U.S. editor to deputy editor, and then editor. Um, and now, very recently, I've just celebrated my three-year anniversary with Time and Tide. Mm. Congratulations. And I have uh, surpassed a thousand articles as well. So Wow, congratulations, <laughs> that's big. So it's been a very like meteoric sort yeah. of rise. I'm, I'm very grateful for it. Oh, that's awesome. Um, but again, that that's the beauty of working within a space that you truly love is that you really invest and um, fortunately, every you know my time and my effort that I've invested, it's it's paid off, and mm. I'd like to think that Andrew's happy with me. So, <laughs> you know, as long as you're still there, yeah. <laughs> um, um, you had something? No, I was gonna say, um, you know, I can see the 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 passion in you for this, and being you know fortunate enough to interact with you outside of the show. Um, you, you, you're one of the people who I, I always enjoy running into oh, I appreciate at that. these events because I know I'm like, all right, here's, here's one of my people, mm. you know what I'm saying? And we sort of speak the same language in terms of, of how we view, uh, the industry and what we feel about it. And, and so I, I always enjoy reading, uh, your articles. Oh, I also you. enjoy seeing you. On Instagram, because <laughs> now you're stepping into the you're stepping into like the influencer phase a little bit. Yeah. Like you got some some reels popping, you got videos coming out, and I think that's really cool too. Um, how has the world of uh, watch journalism evolved since COVID? Um, obviously, okay. you've seen the changes, and I think when you think about, and I'm 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 curious to see you explain this. when you think about when you first joined Time and Tide. Sure to what it's like now, aside from just your contributions, how has the landscape changed? So I think at its core, in terms of like how we write, we've always at Time and Tide had this approach of like, we're the home of watch culture, we wanna make it fun for everybody. Right. You know, um, rest in peace, Watchville. But once upon a time- oh, yeah, for, Watchville, for, yeah. Watchville was but, great. You know, for us, for us watch nerds. Yeah. And for the record, that was the most surreal thing for me is that I used to read the Watchville app every day. Yep. So I went, I, I joke, I went from reading Watchville to leading it. 
because you'd have our, the articles show up in the feed and I would see like the so view for those that don't know let's just recap <laughs> yeah, real quick re- watch <laughs> Watchville was like one of, it was like kind of like it was just it would take on all these RSS feeds yeah uh, but specifically about watches from all these publications yeah, so it was, it was, it was Hodinkee's app it, Hodinkee purchased it and so now the Hodinkee app is modeled after what was Watchville mm-hmm. but Watchville was I mean even when we first started it was a huge resource yeah. Right. It was just so easy to stay current with what was happening and releases because there's so much information coming at you daily in terms of the watch industry. Uh, yeah. Watchville was was incredible for that. So I'm sorry. Continue. No. And so the reason why I bring up Watchville, right, is because that is a very simple way to explain, like, how we kind of think of things or approach things. It's this right. idea of we're not the only players in this game. Yeah. Right. Of course, there's the massive Hodinkee. You know, they're, they're, they're the big player. But you've got Monochrome, you've got Fratello, you've got all these publications, mm-hmm. and we're all writing about the same thing. So if you're going to survive or if you're going to sort of distinguish yourself, you've got to come at things with a different angle. Right. And so for me, it's not just, okay, you know, name of the watch and sort of here's the news. I'm going to tell you the news, but I'm also going to try to think about you know, okay, what's the conversation that's going to happen after I publish this? I'm going to try to anticipate it and try to speak to that conversation right. now. Because, and that's the beauty of me being an enthusiast before a journalist is that I'd like to think I'm pretty good at making that anticipation, right? Mm. Like I'm able to think like, okay, so like the Black Bay 54 comes out. My first thought is, did we just render the Black Bay 58 obsolete? Mm. So that's what I wrote about. It wasn't just like introducing, you know, Black Bay 54. I wrote about that's very that interesting. conversation. Yeah, yeah. No, uh, and I, you know, I don't want to give too much of the time tied secret sauce away, but you know, that's that's kind of how how you know we approach things, right? Well, what's crazy about that is that that watch comes with a rubber strap too. Yeah, <laughs> that's something that people have been begging for in the fifty. Yep. Yeah, that's uh, true. And uh, but I think um, that was art- articulated very well because. And I never looked at it like that, but I think that is the appeal um, and why people do enjoy Time and Tide. There's something about Time and Tide that doesn't feel as, um, how do I describe it? I have a joke that, that can kind of describe it. If you okay, want. please. So, and, and this is not a dig at them because, of course, like, I, I love you guys over at Hodinkee. But, <laughs> I, why did I know that this is where but, it was going? No, but, but, I, but I always, I, I joke with people that, like, you know, we take the cashmere cardigan off. Sure. Right? Yeah. <laughs> well, I was, and it's funny. I was going to say there's something about it that feels a little more off the cuff, yeah. a little less buttoned up, but not, not put together. It feels very put together, but it doesn't feel as though you guys are tiptoeing around brands. Yeah. Right. And I think that's the enthusiast perspective that you're, you're speaking about coming from, because there's the 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 difference is there's the inquiry. Right. Where it's like, OK, great. We're going to review this watch. But what are people really thinking about? Yeah. What do they really want to talk about? Not what they want to know. They can get the information about the watch yeah. from five different publications. They're all we're all going to give you the same thing. Movement case diameters, materials, release date, pricing, everyone's got yeah. that covered. What else are we gonna give you? What is it that you really wanna talk about? Not that you wanna know. You're gonna look for what you wanna know. 
what, what are we talking about? Yeah, because look, like we're always gonna have a specs table at the end of our any like watch review. Of course, it's gonna be there, right? Um, but you know, to to sort of answer your original question, like that. So that sort of core, like how we write, has always been there. But what we recognized is video is of course becoming bigger and bigger. Absolutely, it's always it's always been like a thing. Mm. But I think in in an era of IG Reels and TikTok. Sure. And as more YouTubers sort of join, you know, like the likes of Adrian and Bark and Jack, where, you know, like all of a sudden Nico shot up million subscribers on YouTube. Mm -hmm. It's very clear that with the next generation, as we transition away from sort of the old guard to the new guard of people who are younger than I am that are becoming watch enthusiasts. Yeah. They're more likely than not going to be watching things than reading things. Richcheckpod.com. Yeah. So, <laughs> so like, let's be clear. There's always going to be people who are reading stuff. Absolutely. That's not going to change. But we knew that we do video quite well, if yep. I can say so myself. So it's just about expanding that offering and trying to figure out, okay, how can we tell even, even more stories or how can we, because yeah. again, like even like watches and wonders, right? It's the same thing in terms of all these publications are there and everybody has the same objective. Mm -hmm. So if you look at our video coverage versus how other publications do it, um, you know, I, I, I again, I'm biased, but I, like we clearly, <laughs> like in my mind, we do it very differently. Sure. Where, you know, there's certain publications who are like, we only have time to write, and we're going to focus on that. Where we kind of looked at it a different way. We're like, no, 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 we're going to put like a, a lot of our attention into the video side of it, and the writing's almost secondary in terms of priority. I, I personally, I think, I think that's the best way to look at it. I, I mean. That's where it's going. And I think to anyone who was paying attention, and you should have because during COVID, we had a lot of time to pay attention, the rise of watch media and what was happening on YouTube, what was happening on Instagram. That's when all of these things really started to spark. Yeah. And a lot of the personalities that you see right now that are sort of leading the frontier, that's that's when those special things started to happen. You talk about the Teddy Baldessiers. You talk about Theo and Harris. Yep. You talk about, you know, I mean, there's there's more. You can, you know, there's there's a ton of these guys, even, you know, Nico and, and all these guys. Like, yeah. you know, they were there. They were the guys sort of over the hill and saying, no, this is the space that we're going to focus on because everyone else has got that covered. And for those who made the investment into venturing off there, um, it's either paid off or I think it will pay off sometime in the future because that is where the shift is going especially as demographics shift into other areas people are going to be consuming content much differently yeah um you had something no um what i did want to say is that i agree with what you said with like time and time doing things differently and especially with like the video stuff that you're doing now was it kind of your idea to pioneer that like me personally yeah because no. it's like so like the video stuff is really just like you like getting at it and this is where like Andrew really is a maestro with this stuff and he he's somebody who doesn't just look at you know two two steps in front of him he's looking down the whole football field right yeah. um, he's not thinking about just this year he's thinking about two years from now sure um, and I think now that I'm you know in my third year and uh, you know more of sort of senior staff at this point there's uh, a trust that he has with me where I can really sort of, for the most part, hold down the fort 
in terms of like the stuff that's happening currently. That's and that allows him to really, I mean, he's still in tune with what's happening now, of course, don't get me wrong, but he is using a lot of his time to think about, like I said, what are we doing? He's a visionary. A yeah, he's a visionary. That's, um, you need that, it's important. You know, and so when it comes to like our video approach, while I certainly execute it, um, a lot of it does stem from both Andrew and our creative director, Marcus, who's been with Time and Tide since the beginning. Like he created like the first video for like the announcement video for Time and Tide. Yeah. Um, so like in terms of this watches and wonders footage, and if you watch about I think Time, um, then you'll be familiar with Marcus. I mean, he's he's the maestro behind the camera. Yeah. Um, but he, you know, if I just called him a cameraman, I mean, he'd slap me. <laughs> let's be clear, he's not just a cameraman. Right. He really he is a creative director. He's a director. Yeah. And so he's there to especially for someone like me who wants to just nerd out and geek out and he's there to ground me mm. and try to create the most entertaining yet authoritative content that, okay. that we can put together. Interesting. And that that's very key because again, if our mission is to bring as many people into the space or, or welcome people in as they're, because if you're searching for our site, odds are you're already sort of horologically curious, right? Exactly. But I don't want somebody to come into the space come to the first piece of content and go, oh, this is too much, and then run off yep. and run for the hills. I want to be the person that, you know, gives you the sickness. I want to get yeah. you know, <laughs> And not because I'm, like, trying to sell you something or sure. you know, whatever. It's just that it's like, hey, I'm a watch nerd. Yeah. When I go to parties with, like, my sort of my friends outside of the space, if I talk about watches, they tell me to shut up. <laughs> but if I make more of you watch nerds, yeah. then when I'm at the party holding a beer, I can talk to you about watches. Exactly. So it's, it, you know, it's infecting people with the bugs. So 100%. The relationships that we have within our niche community mm -hmm. outside of it. And expand know? it. It's all about yeah. expansion. So it's selfish. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's not all altruistic. <laughs> um, you know, speaking of watch media, and you know, staying current. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that we want to talk to you about, and this is where you get to like switch your hat and okay. uh, you get to be a co-host. Sure. Uh, but we have had some releases yeah. recently. And uh, you know, we talked about this whole, the, no, the, the whole Blanc Pan, uh, <laughs> Blanc Pan Fest. The, the 51 Fathoms. The, the 51 yeah. Fathoms. <laughs> Uh, Speaking about things that were made to break. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, if you if you guys saw my my reel, that was like one of the things that I kind of harped in on. Yeah, was this idea of you know, and again, it's just it's just a thought experiment. I'm not I'm not trying to push people one way or another, but it's just this idea of if these swatch group collaborations are about bringing people into the world of analog watches and like introducing them. Yep. Mm -hmm. What does it say that theoretically somebody's first experience with, with a mechanical watch? is a $400 disposable watch. Mm. Just food for thought in a world of Laurier's and Seiko 5's and, you know, is this really the first foot that we wanna, you know, sort of go with, right? Like yeah. the first step. Um, and I think I've seen people online already say that like their their 51 Fathoms, as I like to call it, has like malfunctioned yeah. or whatever, Oof. right? And I'm yeah. not saying like that's, that's the 1%. Stuff. Yeah, like that's the 1% of the 100%, right? Like I'm not, you know, yeah, but, but that one percent hurts. Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> that one percent is too much. Yeah, it, it's one of those things where when I first saw it, I'm like, the design's great, it looks great. awesome. They, they're super cool. Yeah, but as as we were talking about before, it's my job to try to figure out to anticipate the conversation and figure out the story within the story. And for me, that was it. It was just this idea of like, okay, 
this is riding off of the coattails of the Moonswatch hype. So a yes. lot of people are, are going to want this thing. Absolutely. Right? And as we saw in the social media videos that came out, there was some guy who interviewed somebody in line. They're like, you know, do you know who Bonpon is? They're like, no. Do you know who Bonpon is? No. So, you know, it's very clear that there's a percentage of the people who are in that line, whether it's the minority or majority, I'm not going to comment, but who don't know who Bonpon is. They just know that this is a new They just hot, know that yeah. this is something. It's the hottest thing. You got to get it. Right? Like this is whether it's to flex it and say that you own it or to buy it so you can put it on eBay in five minutes. You know, it's the collaboration itself is a brand. It's yeah, bigger exactly. than the whoever the participants are. Mm. Um, so, you know, I like again, I think it looks great, sure. but I I at least appreciate the fact that with the moon swatch, if the battery dies, you can take your coin, screw the little slot, pop up, a new battery, pop a new battery in. This watch, like an Apple Watch, has a shelf life. Eventually, yes. it'll either stop working or it'll be working in a way that's just not practical. Like, you know, the power reserve all of a sudden is like eight hours or the yeah. watch is erratically running. And, you know, there's people, when I put that reel up, they're like, you're taking this too seriously. This is meant to be fun. And I'm like, yeah, you're, you're, you're right to some degree. But let's be clear, it's very easy for us watch people as you're wearing a Rolex, I'm wearing a Cartier and you've got a Christopher Ward to think that like, oh, like who cares? $400 if it breaks, it breaks. But that's not the case for the majority of yeah, people. No. <laughs> you know, like, right, like $400 is like, it's an Apple watch, it's a iPhone SE, it's, yeah. you know, repairing your laptop, you know, whatever it is. So it's not nothing to just spend $400, $400 on disposable grocery luxury. Yeah. Like there's, you could, $400 you can spend on a lot more. Absolutely. And so, also, and to that point, it's like for $400, you'll need to get a disposable watch, go buy a Seiko 5, go buy a Citizen, go buy come almost on. anything else. Yeah. Yeah. It, no, I think it's, it's, a, it's a fair point. And, um, you know, it's funny hearing you, you talk about that because I, I, I go back mentally to the Moon's Watch and I think about everything that happened then. And, and it was this, you know, this hype that was created, the, the, Speedmaster and all of these different colors, price point 260. And I always go back to the fact that it was the highest, it was the week of the highest grossing sales for Omega for Speedmaster Professionals was yeah. the week that they released the Moon Swatch, mm -hmm. a, a swatch that was $260. And some people couldn't get it, but it, it, it gave them the bug whether they were already watch collectors and realized, you know what, I ought to have this piece, or people who just introduced to the watch who said, hey, listen, I got, I got an extra 6K to blow. I can't get this one. Let me get the real thing. And so I think about... And that makes you feel good, too. And it makes you feel good. Yeah. He's just like, I got the real one. I'll come back for the moon swatch. Whatever. Yeah. And I think about the Blanc Pan swatch and then this next release, and they hit us the bronze gold for thirty thousand dollars. Thirty thousand dollars. I mean, like, no one's buying a, a fifty fathoms <laughs> off the swatch release. They're they're too expensive. Crazy. Yeah. I mean, yeah, like, it just feels like a money grab all around. No, I you know, look, <laughs> a Speedmaster Professional is not a little amount of money, but in in, in compared to a fifty fathoms, but compared to a fifty fathoms, yes. it's a much it's almost half different price. jump. Yeah, <laughs> literally almost half price. Um, so, yeah, and, and look, the, the Moon Swatch story, it's, it's a little more romantic because 
the Speedmaster in of itself does have that NASA first, you know, watch on the moon sort yeah. of crossover where there is a contingent of people who know what that watch is because they're space enthusiasts, yes. not watch enthusiasts. And so if you're this sort of engineering student who's always known about uh, the Speedmaster, but you can't afford it. And all of a sudden here's this swatch where it's like, oh, I can have this tribute to the moon watch. And it says Omega on it. That That's an easy yeah. sell. But with Bon Pon, it is, it's, it's much more of a niche contingent behind yeah. it, right? Like you have to be very into dive watches. Yeah. Or you have to really be into the story of like, the quartz crisis and the resurgence of mechanical where yeah. it's Jean-Claude Bivet saying we have never made a quartz watch and we never will. Right. And, and let's be clear. Bonpon is far more than just the 50 fathoms. Like they really yes, do they, have other cool watches that do. I think people need to like wake up to. Um, but it's not, I mean, it really is a luxury brand. Like they're, you know, these divers are $15,000. Mm -hmm. So it's so much more than a Seamaster or a Submariner. Right. So it is a vastly different jump in proposition. Like, okay, great. The 51 fathoms, as I'm just calling it. Um, yes. Fathoms. Now more people are aware of Blanc Pond, but that doesn't mean more people can afford Blanc Pond. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, because again, it's this, it's this bigger jump. So yeah, I mean, it's no coincidence that they've introduced the third act of the seventh anniversary after the introduction of the Swatch collaboration. But I don't think, you know, the segments of buyers are, are vastly different. I think the people who are interested in the 51 Fathoms are not interested are, are, in the Swatch are, Blanc Pen. Yeah, the people who are interested in the Swatch Blanc Pen are, or the people who are interested in the Bronze Gold 50 Fathoms are not necessarily the people who are interested in the 51 Fathoms other than just pure novelty. Sure. You know, like, just like, oh, like, you know, here, here's, the, here's the one I wear to Vegas. And here's the one I wear when I feel much, much safer and I'm less worried about getting my arm chopped off. Mm. Um, yeah, look, it, it's tough. And this is going to be the problem as, as the sort of the swatch group collaborations kind of evolve, yeah. right? Yeah. Is I, Where I, do you take it from here? A pilot watch. Well, I, I think, and again, I, I'm not like, I don't have like any sort of like insider information here, but I think the next step is theoretically the type 20. Yeah. yeah. Right. Which would be hot. I'm but Lancy in there. You gotta do it. That would yeah. be crazy. So you have the type 20. Mm. And then after that, that's where it gets tricky. Because like with a brand like let's say Longine, it's kind of too close. Mm. Yeah, it is. You know what I mean? Like where it gets to a point where it's almost like, do I want to spend a few hundred on the swatch Longine? Or do I just, you know, save my shekels for a little bit longer and get an I actual Longine? Get an actual. Because, you know, Longine Hydro Conquest is not like far north of a thousand dollars no so you know if I just wait a year i can get the actual on gene mm -hmm. so it, it gets tricky and then it gets to a point where okay well if we're not going to go towards Longines, hamilton or mito or whatever because for whatever reason they determine it's it's not going to be like a feasible thing to do mm. then you circle back to the seamaster for a last hurrah which apparently there's rumors that they've already produced prototypes for I'm sure they have, but I personally think it would be really silly for them to do to any sort of Seamaster Swatch collaboration until the next Bond movie comes out. Because if you wait till the Bond movie comes out and you do sort of like a Bond variant of a sort of 
uh, swatch master, I mean, let's just call it. Units. So you know. could do like, <laughs> like that's like a whole parent and kid selling right there. Yeah, where it's so like, like a, his and hers. It's like dad or mom gets the James Bond watch, child gets the yeah, swatch I mean, version. If, if we're talking about dollars and cents, like, yeah, yeah, that is the that's the money play. Yeah, I I think that's that's the time to sure. to do it because again, it, it's kind of like the moon swatch was so big that everything else not because it's bad it's just because the moon swatch was first and it was so big it's kind of diminishing at least in my opinion diminishing returns no i understand afterwards that. yeah and so with the seamaster it's kind of like the last hurrah yeah where it's like okay like it's it's gonna have this sort of parabolic moment where the moon swatch started here and it sort of slowly goes down and then the seamaster will kind of bring it back up but after that, like, I really don't know. There's, no, there's nothing else. I do have an idea for Swatch that sure. I think could, like, beat the moon Swatch. And I was actually thinking about this on my train ride down here. With, like, all this sort of Taylor Swift madness. And, like, Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey. And, like, okay. it just seems like anything Taylor Swift <laughs> is, like, do a Swifty Swatch. Swifty Swatch. So, imagine there was a series of, like, Swatch ironies or whatever where to make them, like, collectible each swatch because there would be multiple configurations and i'm not so much of a swifty where i know exactly how many albums she has but you are okay. a swifty but imagine there was a different swatch and each one was a different album cover sure and then it was like a collect them all situation like the moon swatch hmm. that like I, I feel like that would have lines all around <laughs> i mean once you get the swifties involved there's no telling yeah, yeah. so i mean Look, Victoria or whoever it's watching, yeah. you want to steal that idea, you know, feel free. But so uh, how do you feel about the timing of the Peresco article then about the 50 Fathoms? Uh, it's it's so tricky to wade into that stuff because. <laughs> That's no, what like, I'm asking. I think I'm asking the right person. No, because you know what? It, 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 it's tough because brands love to make claims because everybody wants to say they were first to do this yeah, and first course. to do that. Uh -huh. And that's why when I'm writing, I, I'll say like, you know, this brand claims that they're first because I know I've got to cover my bases because it very well could be that somebody comes to me next week with a press release and says they were first. Yeah. Um, and the whole dive watch thing, it's all so murky. Yeah. yeah. Because it's like, all right, is it Submariners at 50 Fathoms? Well, wait a second. Zodiac had something mm -hmm. in 1953 too. And then it's like, you know, so it gets to a point where I just start to wonder, should we even really care who's first and just care about who does it best? Yeah. yeah. Ooh. Bar. Yeah. Um, I, I think the answer is when it comes to this dive watch segment is everybody can debate who's first, but I think we all know that the most iconic is the Submariner. Yeah, definitely. Right? Like that's the watch that has been ripped off, whether it's Invicta or whoever. Every dive watch Shout out to Adam. is trying to look like the Submariner. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. I, I've never looked at an Invicta and went like, "Oh, that looks like a Fifty Fathoms." Never. You know, <laughs> so. Yeah. So let me ask you. Yeah. Um, and we're we're nearing the end here. Um, but now you're you're in a space. You're working for Time and Tide. You've put three years in. You get to go to these amazing events. You take these amazing trips. Um, how does it feel now? Three years in. D does it? Do you still kind of get jazzed up? Is it sort of like? Does it? Does it? fade a little bit does it lose its appeal do you still get excited handling all these watches oh no i, I still definitely get excited handling everything mm. um i will say that i think we're in a period now where 
it's sort of like every other year with Apple devices where you look and it's like, oh, really? Just like a new camera? Yeah. Like, just like this <laughs> iPhone 15, right? And we might be kind of there right now with watches a little bit where mm. it's like, okay, like what we can expect is a different dial. Yeah. Because there was a period of time where it was like all of a sudden movements were jumping to 72 hours of power reserve. Yeah. Where people were introducing silicon escapements. Yep. Like more regularly. I mean, I know like Ulysses Arndam was like always ahead of the game on that. Mm -hmm. But there was a period where like all of a sudden we were going from tube TVs to plasmas. Yeah. And now it's like, okay, well, everything's just kind of, you know, yeah, every, grown, everything's grown an that. Yeah. You know, and, and so I'm just curious to see when we hit back into that sort of period of like, Oh no, like we're really seeing, at least from a consumer perspective, because from an engineering, like I can't appreciate behind the scenes all these things that are probably being developed that we just don't understand in right. terms of like how a screw is manufactured. Sure. Or, right. Yeah. But in terms of like from the consumer perspective, like I said, we had this period where we were rocketing up to 72 hours of power reserve. Yeah. But now, like, that's like, that's we're, sort of, we're stuck sort of, of talking yeah. about like those leaps and bounds and in innovation. Yeah. So that's again why I'm, I'm in a period of, of, sort of as a collector where I'm like, I'm most curious about the externals and aesthetics mm. because I get it. Like at this point, we're really not going to see drastic sort of caliber innovation. I mean, like from a caliber standpoint, probably one of the most interesting things I've seen recently was that Tag Heuer um, Porsche Carrera mm. where there's the, the sort of special snailed wheel where like a car racing from zero to 90 kilometers per hour the chronograph seconds hand speeds up and then it gradually decelerates. Yeah. Right. And like, it's not like the most like practical feature, mm -hmm. but it's cool that they thought to do that with a movement. Yeah. Right. So like, that's interesting. Um, I think it was cool when the Rochapon GMT came out, mm -hmm. you know, that it's just like an interpretation of a complication in a different way. Yeah. The Parmesan. Yeah. The Parmesan. Yeah, it's a good one. But yeah, I mean, at this point, you know, we're not, we're not seeing like crazy, sort of innovation on, on, on the movement side, the way that perhaps we were seeing it before. Right. At least that's just my perspective. And it doesn't have to be that way. But I, for me, where I just, I'll always be interested in, in just holding things in the metal, old or new, right? Like, I think more often than not, we like to hold things that are vintage, right? Yeah. So I don't care yeah. whether or not it, it just came out or if it came out 20 years ago, but any chance I get to hold something and take it in a little bit more and, and you get a nuance sort of understanding of like, how do the lugs camber and how yeah. does this really fit? And it just, holding one watch helps you better review and explain a different watch. No, you're right. So, you know, yeah. it, it's any any experience you can have with anything in the metal, whether as a journalist or as a consumer, like seize the moment, right? Like wind up and watch time are happening soon. Yep. So, I mean, definitely go to wind up because it's free. And if you're willing to, watch time is great too. Like, yep. If you can go to it, if you're in the New York City area, because you get to hold all these products mm. that maybe for me as a journalist, I've, I may have held them before, but there's going to be things there that you probably haven't held. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I recommend that. And that's not a, like a paid plug. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Like, those are like two rival publications. Yeah. <laughs> well, I want to say, uh, you know, thank you for, for joining us tonight. This has been some yeah. time in the making. I had a lot of fun. Uh, you know, learning about your story and, and hearing your journey, um, talking to you about all these, all these things that we love so dearly. Um, for those of you who are watching and listening, uh, if you don't know where to find us, I'll tell you, it's at riskcheckpod.com, uh, at riskcheckpod on Instagram. Um, 
You can watch this episode on the website. We're also on YouTube, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, audio and video. Um, this has been a real pleasure. Uh, sad to cut it short. Or what well, does it feel? I think we've, I think we've, I think we put some time in. Yeah, I mean, we got this more to talk about, though. We'll, we'll <laughs> I say, like, I, but like, we'll I, definitely, I we definitely, got, we definitely got to bring you back for for part two. Um, but this was a lot of fun, and um, yeah. I'm I'm interested in seeing where things go from here. Uh, not only in terms of of the industry and and all that's changing, because we got a lot of stuff happening that's coming up. GPHG, uh, Watch Time, Dubai Watch Week. I know you're going to be busy. Uh, and so we'll plan to catch up with you, but much appreciated. Thank you for joining us this evening. No, no, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys. Absolutely. And yeah, I just feel bad that we, you know, because I, I don't like necessarily love talking about myself. You know, <laughs> like, 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 you know I, I want to talk about the watches. So yeah, you know. No, part, but it's good. Two, I think, you know, there, there's, there's so many, you know, there's, there's so many, there's, there's so many people that, you know, uh, can capture the attention of the audience uh, of the watch community. Uh, and I think it's cool to be able to tap into who these people are, and mm-hmm. hear their stories. And it was an opportunity for us to do that tonight. So I appreciate you for coming on board. And uh, those watching and listening, we appreciate you. And we'll, we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Deuces.